a very warm welcome from St Paul's Cathedral to this, the next in our online conversations. My name is Paula Gooder and I am the Canon Chancellor here at St Paul's, which means that I oversee the theology and learning that takes place within the cathedral. This time's conversation is slightly different because normally I'm the one asking the questions, but this time I'm not. This time I'm in conversation with the Reverend Richard Coles, who you will know from Radio 4's Saturday Live, who will be asking me questions about my most recent book, The Parables. In our conversation, we ranged widely looking at what a parable is and how you might define it, how you go about interpreting the parables, how the parables come in and disrupt us and challenge us and make us think new thoughts about ourselves, about God and the world. We also have a look at some new interpretations of parables that you may know very well indeed. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with the Reverend Richard Coles. Paula, obvious question, but don't be scared of obvious questions. What is a parable? Very good question indeed. And um, actually, the problem is, um, it's really quite difficult to define what a parable is. Um, one of the really interesting things is that um, the parables of Jesus are so different. Some of them are really long stories. Some of them are short little snappy narratives. Um, some of them have just tiny references. Others are much greater and more extensive. Some you can interpret very easily. Some are really hard to interpret. So in short, a parable is a story or an illustration told by Jesus that tickles our imaginations and makes us think. Um, but beyond that, it's actually quite hard to define them. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because everybody thinks they know what a parable is because we're so familiar with them. You know, the prodigal son, the the moat and the beam and all, all those stories that are part of our, our kind of shared heritage or, or some of us anyway. But actually, when you press them, it's very difficult to get a working definition that encompasses them. And sometimes they push in opposite directions. Is there something about their elusivity, their elusiveness that is at the heart of what they are? I think that's right, actually. I mean, I think one of the things that becomes um, really clear to me when I was um, thinking a lot about the parables is there is no one thing that you can say about a parable that you can say about every parable. So it, almost the definition of a parable is that it's different from the next one and the next one. Um, and so, yeah, I think there is something about the elusiveness, um, the kind of the ticklishness of a parable that makes you wonder where to take it, how to unfold it. Um, and part of that is what makes it a parable. And interestingly, um, in the Gospels, there are a couple of illustrations like um, Consider the Lilies of the Field, that after great consideration, I decided weren't parables because they weren't quite elusive enough. So I think there is something actually kind of fundamental about elusiveness and parables. Why did you get into the, it occurs to me that parables are tricky for people like you who've, you know, made, um, make your living out of looking very closely at the Bible because, precisely for that reason, that they don't particularly want to get into any line or order that you might wish to impose upon them. What's, why do you, why, why do you go there? That's a great question. Um, because I love stories, and as I get older and older, um, the more convinced I am that actually there's something in stories that can convey truth that can't be conveyed in other kinds of ways. 
And also, um, I think probably maybe my personality type, but there's something about that um, impossibility of tying parables down that makes me love them more. Um, the bit that goes, and now, and now, um, that kind of impossibility of actually being able to, to grasp it is, I think, what makes them fun, um, communicates truth in a different kind of way. And um, for a while now, I've been reflecting on how stories actually help us into a greater understanding of ourselves, of God and the world. Um, Snodgrass, who writes um, about parables, says something I think really quite interesting which is that um, when we learn things, we most often learn them through stories, but we can't store that number of stories in our minds. And so what we do instead is we turn them into abstract ideas. Where we go wrong is when we try and tell other people about them. We tell them about our abstract ideas rather than our stories, um, which I think is a really interesting and tantalizing thing. I think that's what Jesus was doing, was helping us into stories in that kind of way. Like the wonderfully named Snodgrass, did you learn new things studying them? Oh, entirely. Um, absolutely. Um, I think there is not a single parable that I didn't learn something um, new about that I hadn't known already. Um, if you look at the um, first century background, there's all sorts of fascinating things there. You look at the original Greek, there's some really interesting words that you can play with. Um, but also, I think it's when you really look at the parables, when you look at them deeply, you realise you can't just come up with a simple, easy answer. Um, what you have to do is wrestle and wrestle. And I think that's primarily what I learned, um, is that, how, that they're really hard work in a really satisfying way. And in a way that, that seems to be entirely consistent with my paltry, partial and conditional understanding of Jesus is that if it's worth doing, it's probably going to be difficult. It's not going to make this stuff easy for you. It's not, you know, you have to enter into these things and allow yourself to be utterly mystified by them. Sometimes there are some parables that I've known all my life and I have literally no idea what he's talking about. Totally with you. Um, after having studied them for all this long time, um, I still also have a list of parables that I have. I look at and then one day I go, I think, oh, might it be about this? And then the next day I go, no, no, I don't think it is after all. Um, and I think there is something about that, isn't there? Um, when I was um, doing the initial work for the book, I put a thing out on Twitter. I'm asking people to give me a gif um, for their favourite parable. And probably the most common one that people sent back was um, the gif of somebody saying, why doesn't he just say what he means? Um, and um, I think the answer is because that's the point. Um, if he just said what he means, um, we wouldn't be on this glorious journey, this mysterious adventure, which for me is what faith is all about. And of course, it's not about what he means, it's what we think he means, doesn't it? So that's exactly. the, and that's what it exposes, doesn't it? Is that our yeah. own imperfect capture of what he wants to give us. So is it distinctive to Jesus? Was Jesus doing something in parables that no one had done before? Yes and no. Always um, a yes and no answer. Um, the no bit is that almost every ancient culture had parables. Um, they used them in various different ways. So um, it is possible to look through all sorts of different ancient texts and see little stories that are quite like the parables. What's different about what Jesus does um, is that you have this kind of real breadth of 
types of parables, the longer stories, the shorter stories, some that are allegories, some that are clearly not allegories. So it's the kind of the variety that is the thing that's really different and unique for Jesus's use of parables. And that I think is fascinating. A big sort of light bulb moment for me when I was getting to know them was understanding what the word parable, well, where it comes from, parabole, thrown alongside. That's an irresistible image, I think, isn't it? These idea that these are stories a bit like a bowling rink that they kind of roll down towards where you want to go, but they're alongside rather than the thing itself. Yeah, absolutely. But you have to be a little bit careful about um, that etymology because if you do it, push it too far as that as an idea, you Im imagine that the parables are illustrations and they're easy to understand. So it's something um, I kind of I quite like your um, idea of kind of the bowling alley, um, because sometimes on a bowling alley, you end up knocking things over as well. And I think in a way that's more close to the parables that sometimes the parables are an illustration which are easy to get. Um, other times they just kind of bowl into the middle of you and throw everything out that you thought you knew and you have to start again so maybe um parabole as a bowling alley is the way to go as a <laughs> definition of parables <laughs> that's a very nice thought i like to think i've made significant contribution to biblical <laughs> studies of that um and of course the fourth gospel makes that trickier still doesn't it because the fourth gospel doesn't have parables but we think it does well, it doesn't use the word. So the word that we get parable from is parabole, as you've just said. Um, but John uses this really interesting word, paroimia. And paroimia um, is one of the translations of paroimia is a parable. Um, and again, what it does is it puts um, images alongside things. So one of the um, images from John's gospel that is called a paroimia is Jesus as the good shepherd. And what's really interesting about that is that in that you can see that, that John is doing a similar thing to what Matthew, Mark and Luke are doing with their parables, but it's different. And the different bit is that in John's gospel, the images all explain a little bit more about who Jesus is through the I am sayings. Whereas in the parables, they often, though not always, are telling you a little bit more about the kingdom. So they're slightly different, but also similar in, in, in certain ways. And another similarity, although, of course, the differences are very marked, is that they're using stuff that's the common experience of everyday people in first century Near East. Shepherds, wine, seeds, agriculture, money, all that stuff that's within reach of everyone. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really hard for us today is that what Jesus did is when let's think of a thing that you would do every day. Um, I mean, which of us today goes out with a, a bowl of seed and strews along the ground? You know, those kinds of things um, no longer make any sense to us. And I think one of the ways in which we struggle with parables is that Jesus gave us these lovely hooks um, to kind of hook into everyday life, but they're not our everyday life anymore. And so one of the things we struggle to do is to work out um, exactly how to interpret them. It's interesting you say that because I grew up in um, sheep farming country and the behaviour of sheep in fields and the relationship between sheep and shepherds is something that I do actually find very resonant sometimes in, in, in the parables. But as you say, that's not everyone's experience. And they take you to places which are both mysterious and universal. Arguments about the kingdom of God, suggestions about what the kingdom of God might be. It's one of those phrases, isn't it, that we, it's very, very familiar to us. We read it all the time in the Bible. Preachers use it all the time. But it's a very, very hard thing to get a firm grip on in more ways than one. 
Oh, absolutely. I always say that if you want to make a New Testament scholar cry, ask them what the kingdom of God is. Um, <laughs> there you go. Because, Over to you. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I'll, and I'll start crying. Um, because, and I think there's a reason why Jesus didn't just say, look, the kingdom of God is. Um, what he said instead was the kingdom of God is like. Um, you to what can I compare the kingdom of God? Um, how do I begin to get into the kingdom of God? And again, it's back to that stuff you were talking about earlier about the elusiveness of it. Is the kingdom, um, you can't just say the kingdom of God is. Um, you have to say the kingdom of God is a little bit like this, it's a little bit like that. We can compare it to this. Um, and in that kind of dancing around the edges, you begin to get some kind of sense about what the kingdom is or is not. I like you use the word dancing quite often in the book. Jesus sort of leads us in a dance around these things. And that's very interesting, isn't it? Because there is something, actually, there's something about the way we're encouraged to uh, be in tension with them and then release the tension. There is something patterned about it. There's something almost choreographed about it, which makes you think this is a sort of pedagogic method of some kind. This is, this is a very distinct and particular way of getting close to and then falling back from really profound and mysterious and important things. Absolutely. And it's almost as though he's teaching us how to do that, as well as teaching us about the kingdom. You know, if you really want to get into the deep heart of the matters of faith, the matters of God, um, you can't just go straight down the middle. Um, what you have to do is, um, there's a lovely phrase that I quite like um, that I read, um, I forget who it was that wrote about it, but obliquity. So the idea is that you come in obliquely rather than um, down the middle. And I think Jesus is teaching us that method of obliquity in the parables, that you come at things around the side. It reminds me an awful lot, there's a lovely saying of Emily Dickinson, tell all the truth, but tell it slant success in circuit lies picking up that same sort of dynamic i think i think that's absolutely right yes that's uh, and that and that jesus is kind of introducing us to this is how you understand truth this is how you get to truth um, and one of the things I, I'm fascinated about um, with the parables um, is I always feel that um, they bowl you into graduate level biblical interpretation rather than kind of entry level biblical interpretation. Although we imagine the parables are the easiest bit of Jesus. Because when you start doing biblical interpretation, as um, I had taught many people over many years, you, the first thing you teach people is that when you read the Bible, you read it according to the type of literature it is. So you say, is it law? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it gospels? Is it epistles? And then you read it like it's that because it helps you into understanding it. I think the thing about the parables that makes them so challenging and head scratching is that actually each parable has to be read on its own terms you can't just go here's how you read parables what you have to say is okay parable of the sower gives us an interpretation this is how we read the parable of the sower but another parable like the parable of the shrewd steward for example or the dishonest steward sometimes it's called um you can't read it like that um and you therefore have to read it according to its terms so it kind of bowls you this kind of really big challenge of how you go about reading there's a lot of work to be done, useful work, I think, in working out what its terms are. For example, its relationship to mashal, to, I mean, precedents in, in Jewish thought and practice that when you, when you know a little bit about that, the more you uncover about that, the more you begin to understand. Do you think you begin to understand better how these things work? If you know a little bit more about the context in which they were formed? Yeah, I, 
think you do. I mean, I think it's one of the things that I became really um, kind of aware of as I got into the parables is that they do have a certain way of functioning, um, which doesn't mean that the next time you read the next parable, you it's really easy. But there's kind of something that kind of makes it more straight. You kind of understand the inner world of it so that you know, I think um, for me, one of the really striking things about the parables is that if you um, if you stop insisting on finding God in all the parables, then actually it suddenly becomes a lot more straightforward, um, which is not to say that God is not to be found in the parables. But often what we do is we go into the parables and go, where's God? Where's God? Oh, it's that character. And then because you've done that, it makes it quite difficult to kind of allow them to be big and expansive. Whereas actually, if you go into parables going, where is God, then it becomes a much more interesting and kind of, again, elusive um, technique. Is that why Jesus uses parables so much in his teaching, do you think, deliberately not to make it easy for us? Yeah, pretty confident. I kind of, in my mind's eye, I had Jesus um, kind of a slightly twinkling eyes and raised eyebrow going, I'll give you another one. Um, just to because he wants us and and that's I mean the thing that a lot of people have noticed in the gospels is Jesus very rarely ever answers a question um, what he normally does is ask another question when you ask him a question and I kind of I imagine that this is who Jesus was where he goes no no put the work in a bit more, bit more work um, see how you're going to get to where you need to be now and he'd rather confuse you in order that you might get it eventually or sort of blind you in order that you might eventually see then imagine that these things are um, easily surrendered to us give up all their meaning to us in one go yeah absolutely there's also in that i think you see it don't you in the reaction of the disciples and those around jesus they become more and more fascinated with him as they begin to perceive that what he's doing is something way way beyond the limits of their imagination they suspect it they intimate it but you see they become curious and that curiosity that unresolvedness hooks them more and more into something that's dynamic moving mm -hmm. draws them along takes them somewhere might take them somewhere they don't yeah. want to go very often yeah, and I think, I mean, the other thing I find enormously forgiving in the Gospels um, is how much the disciples also don't get it. So you have that kind of regular moment where Jesus says, do you not yet understand? And the disciples are going, no, still haven't got it. Um, and for me, that kind of is enormously forgiving in the sense that Jesus kind of draws us on. But he's OK if you don't quite get it. Um, he gives you another. He bowls you another parable. He gives you another conundrum to think about. And I think that's just something really important in Christian faith about not having to have everything tied up with a nice bow on the top. Um, Jesus says, oh, that's fine. Um, come, come follow and we'll see where we get to. It's a very high stake strategy, isn't it? Because as a preacher, as a pastor, very often people want me to explain things. They want me to tell them what to do or what something is mm. and it's very difficult to just say i don't know but i realize the more i do this the more i realize that the only honest at least thing i can say is i don't know let's try and discover it together maybe but i don't know it's not yeah. there to be known it's there to get you not you to get it something like that yeah yeah absolutely and and it's it's there to be experienced um, it's not, it's, we kind of, we like to have a think that if, you know, and part of it's to do with our language about believing, isn't it? Is that, you know, 
the creeds, very, very important. Um, but we, we tend to, you know, the way in which we've translated the language of believing is, I believe in. And then you have a list. I believe in this and, and this and this and this. Whereas I love the idea from the Gospels, whereas the Greek for believing always comes with the preposition ace, which means into. So you believe into something, which feels to me very much more of an experiential thing than a list of things that I have to know in order to be able to kind of tick it off and go, right, here I am properly believing now. And reassuringly persistent. I mean, so much of the Gospels, the more you study them, uh, you sort of get a sense about how they belong to a particular time and place, that they reflect the concerns of the communities in which they're made. Maybe they're living through a time of persecution and threatened danger. Maybe they need to code things in order to protect themselves from hostile inquiry. Do you think that's true of the parable? Do you think, again, there's something, their very elusiveness makes them slightly impermeable to that kind of editorial redaction, that they, that they somehow, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, do you think they are more authentic? Do we think we hear the voice of Jesus in them, perhaps more clearly, less obscured than we might in other bits of scripture? I think so. And I think it's because of that kind of tantalising um, ticklishness um, about them that I think that you've got um, elements of Jesus' um, um, of Jesus's voice clearly speaking. But what's really fascinating, I think, is that some of the parables um, are used differently in different gospels. Um, and that kind of raises all sorts of questions about actually what whether you've got is the original story which comes from Jesus. And then when the gospel writers were putting them in their context, they tried to make sense of it. So an example, um, I think the parable of the lost sheep is really interesting because it occurs in Matthew and in Luke's gospel. And in Luke's gospel, it's in a string of three lost and found parables. So you've got the parable of the sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the, the lost son or the prodigal son. And it's all about um, losing and finding and um, who gets lost and who gets found. So I, it's a lovely little string. So the parable, the sheep wanders off um, and gets lost. Um, the, the coin clearly doesn't wander off, but somehow is lost. And then the question is with the prodigal son, um, does he wander off and get lost or is he lost or is, does he deliberately go and get lost and how does he get found? He gets found when he finds himself and then comes back home again. So there's lovely kind of playing around with lostness and find, foundness in Luke. Whereas Matthew, it's all about members of the church who are led astray. There's a different verb used for it. Um, and the sheep gets lost because the sheep is deceived and is led astray. Um, and then it becomes about people from the church. And so I kind of rather love that you've got this kind of layeredness about the parable. So you've got Jesus's original story, but then you've also got how it's heard and used in different contexts, which is not to say that also Jesus didn't use it in all sorts of different contexts. So I think what I'm kind of saying is yes, but also what it does is it reveals to you how then the earliest hearers heard it and understood it and went, well, do you think he meant this? Or do you think he meant that? And already you can see that kind of process of unpacking it going on. I was leading a pilgrimage in the Holy Land and we went to Abu Ghosh, which is one of the places tradition identifies as Emmaus. Mm. It was at the end of our pilgrimage. And we had that extraordinary experience you have when you do that. We come together as a group in all halves of variety and difference and have been very shaped and moved by what was happening. And I remember we turned up late, thanks to me, 
and they closed for the day but i put on my most pitiable face and they let us in and the abbot said we could join them for solemn vespers it was the eve of i think the annunciation or something grand and i remember standing there's a wonderful garden there i don't know if you've been there and our guide I was looking at this enormous kind of shrub, like a tree, and there were parakeets or some weird parrot-like bird in it. And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, oh, that's what, that's what grows from the mustard seed. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And then we took some of these tiny little seeds. I remember them in the palm of my hand and said, that's what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about the mustard seed. Of course, a mustard seed to me in the kitchen cupboard is something very, very different and doesn't do that. And I don't know quite how authentic his interpretation of what mustard seed was, but it did remind me that... When you're there in the place where this stuff happened, the resonance is completely different. So that was interesting. But the really interesting thing was we then went into solemn vespers and it was just extraordinary. Everyone was kind of profoundly moved by it. And it was as if thinking about the kingdom of God, holding the seed in my hand, had kind of opened up the possibility of my sense of the kingdom of God expanding flourishing, blooming, and giving us somewhere to sit and somewhere to shelter at the same time. The whole thing was like a, a kind of worked parable. One of the things I really love about these kind of real particular examples from parables is that they were genuinely everyday examples. And just like you did, um, you would have heard Jesus talking about the mustard seed. And then you'd have walked past a tree and gone, oh, that's what he was talking about. And we don't because we don't tend to walk past mustard trees in the same kind of way and we lose some kind of element. One of the things I, um, interpretations of the mustard seed parable that I really enjoy um, is the possibility that actually the mustard seed was a weed. Pliny refers to a certain kind of mustard um, which once planted can never be eradicated and it grows and grows and grows. So it's just possible that the parable of the mustard seed was actually saying the, the kingdom of heaven is like a pernicious weed, which is a tiny, tiny seed. And you grow, sow it accidentally, not realizing that you've done it. And it grows into a whacking great tree in which the birds of the air all come to roost. And if it happens that you were trying to sow a wheat field while you were doing it, the very last thing you would want in the middle of your wheat field is a whacking great tree with birds roosting in it. So one interpretation of the parable of the mustard seed um, is that it was the kingdom of heaven is like a pernicious weed that grows and grows and attracts birds that disrupt your lovely wheat field. Or the parable of the mustard seed could be, as we often interpret it, that the, uh, the mustard seed grows into a lovely tree and the birds come and they take their shelter um, and it's not pernicious um, or weedy at all. But what's great is that actually it's all kind of left hanging and um, it might be a pernicious weed. It might be a lovely sheltering tree. Um, how does the kingdom feel when you think about it as one? How does it feel when you think about it as another? And that kind of gives you um, that kind of sense of what's going on, I think, with the parables, the playfulness of it. You say that's great. And who doesn't like playfulness? Well, not everybody likes playfulness. And the church, when it's trying to be the custodian of truth, the mediator of a tradition, um, Ein Festerburg, if you like, sometimes would, I think, it balks a bit, doesn't it, at multiplicity of interpretations, especially over key stuff. Do you think there's a way of doing this where we can maintain um, a proper sense of who we are, 
where we come from, where we're going, and be open and alive to the possibilities of these parables disrupting our thinking and our doing. I think you put your finger on one of the really important things um, and one of the things that we really struggle with um, because it's, uh, for me, the kind of at the heart of Christian faith um, is nearly always par paradox where you say one thing and you say another thing that apparently contradicts it and in the middle of that um, is the deep, deep truth of existence. And for me, there's something about Christian faith which gives you your bedrock, your security, your absolute certainty, and also says, and now let's throw it all, all up in the air and play with ideas and see where we get to. Um, if we go too far in one direction, then we become rigid and you simply cannot um, kind of have that open expansiveness. If you go too far in the other direction, you lose your sense of security and bedrock and actually any sense of actually who we are and where, where we're from, where we're going to what we're about so it's kind of holding that paradox together in a really crucial way and for me um, the person who holds that paradox together is Jesus um, Jesus at the middle um, of both of those things who is certain and sure and also says now throw everything you know up in the air and see where it gets you it's very but, risky sorry no I was going to say but how we do that is difficult I think you were going in the same direction well I was just going to say it's very risky you need yeah. to have a lot of nerve to do that. And in uncertain so. times, well, all times are uncertain, but I'm thinking about some of the issues which beset particularly the Church of England, our bit of the church at the moment. Um, it makes for a very risk-averse culture, I think, in some ways. And how do we do that? How do we equip ourselves or open ourselves, open ourselves up to the possibility of transformation at times when we're cautious we're reluctant to commit to something new. The parables perhaps would give us resources, fuel in the tank, vision, something to hold on to, something to give us motive force when times are uncertain. I think that's right. And I think kind of learning, one of the things I loved about doing all of the parables, because what I decided to do in the book was to look at all of them, because often what we end up doing is looking at kind of our five or six favourite ones. And in looking at all of them, it really did feel that it was an incredibly nourishing resource. Um, so long as you don't mind your nourishing resource being a little bit annoying, um, because <laughs> the annoying bit are those that just defy being able to be tied down, um, things like um, you are the salt of the earth, what on earth that parable means um, is still up for grabs as far as I'm concerned. But there are there is something about that full range of the parables that says, you know, come with me, have a look at the natural world. Have a look at vineyards and wheat fields and um, and how that all works. And then have a think about how relationships work. How do power dynamics work between masters and their slaves? Um, what happens in families? And what happens when you're invited to these big things and how you engage with them? And it's almost as though it kind of takes you into kind of the complexity of everyday living. And then says, and now here, what would you do in this context? And there, in what would you do in that context? Of course, it's a very different everyday living to our own. Um, and one of the things I wonder about is what it would feel like if we tried to be a bit more parable in the way in which we think about how we live our faith. Um, I tried when I was writing the book to be a little bit more um, parable by, um, so when I kind of hit issues that I wasn't quite sure how to solve, um, told a story about it you know so there was this person um, who had to make this decision and this happened um, and I found actually telling the story um, helped me 
untangle some of the knottier bits. So I, I kind of rather intrigued by that as a technique as well. And when you look at the history of interpretation, do you get a sense that our culture at different times uh, and different places latches onto some parables more than other? Some are more resonant than others, some more intractable than others, depending on who we are and when we are. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are some that are just the beloved all the way through, um, the prodigal son being the top one of those. Um, but there are other parables that have been more and less important throughout the Christian, um, throughout Christian history. And I think that is interesting because it tells us that certain kinds of stories um, become more important at certain points in our life um, and less important at other points in our life or other points in our, our history. So yeah, I think there's something about um, principles in the parables um, which become more attractive to us in certain times. So I suppose a question for today is, you know, which are our parables that really get the juices flowing? I'm interested what you, you, you focus our attention for a second then on the power dynamics in relationships, the master and slave parables, which again, uh, I mean, there are lots of places in the world where slaves are not merely a historical note, are they? People live in conditions of slavery now. But for most of us, that's quite distant and remote. There are nevertheless power relationships which govern our lives, which constrain us, sometimes do more than constrain us, diminish us and, uh, and or certainly define us. So those, those seem to be a very rich source to look at. They are. And the thing that's really fascinating is um, when you lay them out like I did in the book, um, I'd never noticed before that um, when you put all the master and slave parables together, you get really quite a long list of them. When you put parables about families together, there's only two. Because if we were writing parables today, we'd have certainly have reversed that and made them all about families with just a couple about masters and slaves. So there's, it's interesting to notice that when Jesus was delving into everyday life for an illustration that people would really relate to, he went to the master and slave relationship. So I think you're right, there's something about the power dynamics, um, about reflection on how a master relates well to slaves and how slaves relate well to masters, um, which are um, very, very interesting. Um, and of course, I feel the need to point out that we are, of course, talking about Jesus's world. So they were masters in those days. Um, but um, today we would probably have um, different images of who, who holds power. And in those relationships, life and death was not metaphorical. They literally were life mm. and death relationships yes. sometimes, weren't they? The powers mm. that masters had over slaves. Yeah. And, and fascinatingly, um, if you had, if I asked you to guess without thinking about it, um, whether Jesus was pro master or pro slave, you would imagine, I think, that he would be pro slave. What's fascinating about the parables is that many of the parables about master and slave, the hero is the master and not the slaves, which is also really, really intriguing. But isn't that interesting? It's one of the things about the parables that's so interesting is that we think we know. We th and for those of us living where we do and when we do with our heritage behind us, the, we're so much formed by the idea, aren't we, that Jesus is a sort of, well, we want him to be on the side of the angels. And our angels are rather different from the angels of the 18th century or the 16th century or the 11th century. And that bit where all of a sudden you realise Jesus is not going to be so easily conscripted to social democracy, for example, mm. uh, is a very interesting one, isn't it? And it's one of the things I find most fascinating about if I'm challenged by people who are hostile to the church and um, happy to live in a secular world what they're often surprisingly dismayed by is realizing that Jesus 
is not a sort of genial host with some kindly things to say that endorse their own um, right thinking. They want him, essentially, even though they sort of don't believe that stuff, they kind of want him to be something. It tells you, doesn't it, how much we're formed by certain conceptions about who Jesus is and what the Bible is and what Christianity is. Yeah, I think I would probably just want to add on the end of that observation, not just people outside of the church. Um, in, inside of the church too, um, we have this very clear, I mean, I think one of the reasons why possibly we struggle with the parables is we have this image of, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, um, who does all the nice things, thinks all the right on thoughts, um, does exactly what we want him to do. And then you come across a parable in which he very clearly seems to take a different view and, um, and we get annoyed with him because actually, you know, he should not be telling a parable about a dishonored, dishonest steward who squandered his master's goods and then gets away with it. We go, well, how on earth does that fit into my way in which the world fits? Um, and uh, that's when I always imagine Jesus with his twinkle in his eye going, think again. But isn't that really interesting? Because I think that's a very powerful weapon to use in the fight against something that absolutely distinguishes our culture at this moment, I think, which is that we think we need to be surrounded by people who think the same as us and that right-minded people can kind of join together and and it is um seemly and proper not to trouble ourselves with a contrary view very much and i think the parables drive a bus through that they do and they demand that you think a contrary view whatever your view was to start with they say well try a different one now and see how that feels and I think that it's very unsettling and very disturbing um, and something we're not very keen on. Um, and I think you're right in that it's a really helpful thing to reflect on today, um, which is, well, what does that mean in terms of how we engage in these really, really difficult debates that we find ourselves in? Um, and clearly we can't just kind of chuck out of the balloon any ideas we don't like, because um, that's not really what Jesus draws us to in the parables. Um, began with an obvious question. I was going to head towards an invidious question or a couple of invidious questions. What's it done to you? What was, did you dethrone a favourite parable? Did you enthrone um, an ignored parable, having spent so much time in them? Well, it always makes me nervous um, when um, someone asks me this because, yes, it has, um, and it makes me the most unpopular person in the world to. Uh, to do this, but it has dethroned the parable of the prodigal son for me. <gasps> oh, um, you can't is, say that. <laughs> yeah, that's right, the big heresy. Um, because I, the more I've read it, the less convinced, I'm not going to say it isn't, but the less convinced I am that actually the prodigal son is about what I have been told it's about for the entirety of my life. So this is the kind of, that's why I'm nervous. So I'll clasp my hands in nervousness. Who's the hero of that? Who's the hero of that parable, Paula? Well, that's the question, um, and I think the answer is there is not a hero. Um, so I would prefer to call the parable of the prodigal son the parable of the dysfunctional family, um, and because actually no one behaves well in that family. So you have, um, and kind of the, the underpinning um, issue about it is that all Jewish advice from the period said, whatever you do, do not split your inheritance before you die. Because if you split your inheritance before you die, you will cause discord in your family. And you will also then have given away your wealth 
So the important thing to know, if you split your inheritance before you die in the culture of the first century, it means that actually um, you have given it away. So while he gave away half to the prodigal son, he'd given away the other half to um, the older son. And so therefore, um, the father had given away all of his property against all the wise advice that um, was offered to fathers in that period. And then um, as um, the advice um, suggests, the younger son went off and lost it all um, and then needed to come back. And then um, once he did come back, um, the father, who had incidentally given away all his goods to the younger son and the older son, then threw a party with the money that was left, um, which now belonged to the older son and not to him, um, and didn't even tell the older son that he was throwing the said party. Um, the older son only found out by accident um, from a slave that he asked what was going on. So you've got this kind of really kind of strange dysfunctional family in which a father does a really unwise thing. The son, the younger son goes off and does what we know a younger son will do in that particular contents. The, the father then takes the property of the older son um, and throws a party without telling um, the older son that that's what he's done. Um, and then the family all falls apart because the kind of in a way the point of the parable of the prodigal son is who is lost and who is found. So you start off with the younger son um, losing himself deliberately um, and then there's a lovely moment while he's away and he comes to himself. So the younger son finds himself and then comes back. The the father um, greets him, so there's a lovely finding moment between the father and the younger son. But we're left at the end of the parable saying, well, actually, um, who is lost and who is found now? Because now the older son is lost and the relationship between the father and the older son is gone. So for me, um, one of the really kind of key features of um, the, the parable of the prodigal son is that actually the father isn't all that good a father. And therefore, maybe there is no hero in this parable at all. Maybe what you've got are three people who are trying to work their way through about what it means to be lost and what it means to be found. How do you lose and how do you find again? Um, and therefore, out of that, you have to kind of look at the parable in a different kind of way. So I think what's going on is it's saying, well, look at this completely dysfunctional family. Now, if this dysfunctional family can behave like this, how much more can God behave in a different kind of way? So it's not completely on its head, but it kind of just kind of pulls a lots of the threads. So it's kind of made it me go, I'm not sure that we can quite interpret it like we normally do. It's a very powerful and disruptive analysis. Part of me is kind of glad that you never met Rembrandt because it might have upset yes. uh, the art history <laughs> of the Dutch Golden Age. But that disruption is an interesting one. So what I find now parables crop up in my dream world quite often. And especially when I'm kind of unsure about things, which is most of the time when I think about it. Do you Have you found studying them that they have interrupted your subconscious that they've disturbed you, that they've fretted you, they've made you uncomfortable, that they've made you have to think about what you do and the way you do it? Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm like you, they, they have inserted themselves into my dream world. Um, I find myself in um, kind of big arguments with um, a master about whether he should treat his slaves in that kind of way or whether I should be going into the vineyard in other kind of ways. So it's um, there is something about them that become a, a, 
a partial but very real world. I think the thing that's fascinating about the parables is you never get quite enough detail in any of the parables um, to get the full picture. And it's almost as though you're invited in with your paintbrush to paint in the rest of the parable. And I think in my subconscious, um, I spend a lot of time painting in details of the parables, um, which is um, interesting. And what they do then is that they kind of, they challenge me to think and think again. And everything I thought, I thought um, I knew, I then have to think in a different kind of way. Um, so yeah, there's, there is something about the parable world that kind of shakes and unsettles you. Um, so therefore, I think probably um, if people are thinking about really engaging with the parables, we should um, responsibly in the 21st century give them a health warning. <laughs> Reading these parables could seriously affect your faith, um, because I think it will. It will affect how you see yourself, how you'll see God, how you see the church, how you see the kingdom. Um, it, it affects everything and kind of just shakes it a little bit and asks you to go, well, maybe if you looked at it this way rather than that way, um, things would look different. It's not very often I want to take my dancing shoes out of their box again, but I have to say you maybe want to do it now. And Dancing Around the Parables with You has been an absolute delight, Paula. It's a great book and uh, just a wonderfully rich experience to find our way back into the mystery of those stories. So thank you. It's been great to talk to you. And to you too. Thanks, Richard. <laughs>